It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you on Friday, January 19th. Sam is in Los Angeles. I am in Los Angeles. Taiwan election results. China doesn't like them. No two-state post-war solution, says Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. More attacks on U.S. shipping in the Red Sea and more military strikes in response. Iran and Pakistan exchange military strikes. The Mideast continues to destabilize, although Iran v. Pakistan is its own plotline. Sam Park, let's start in Taiwan. The voters elected the DPP presidential candidate, Democratic Progressive Party candidate, the current vice president, Lai Ching-tai. He defeated the Kuomintang Party, KMT Party candidate, Ho Yu-i, and the TPP Party candidate, the Taiwan People's Party candidate, Ko Wen Ji. That election took place on January 13th. So Lai, the current vice president, wins the presidency of Taiwan with just 40% of the vote. That's the lowest percentage for a winning candidate since 2000. No party won a majority in the 113-seat Yuan. That's the legislature. The KMT won 52 seats. DPP got 51 seats. So even though the party that won the or the party that won the presidency got 51 seats, right? They don't have the majority. And then the TPP got eight seats. You need 57 votes for a majority. So you've got a barely winning presidential candidate with 40% of the vote. They don't even win the most votes in the legislature, and nobody's got a majority. It's kind of a morass. It is, but this is also the first time that either the DPP or the KMT has won a third consecutive term in the presidency. So it's notable for that reason also. I don't think any of these parties, certainly not the TPP, but uh, the DPP and the KMT are the, the main parties. And I don't think either of them can be perfectly happy with these results. But in the end, I think we'd have to say that the DPP is the happier party between the two of them, because uh, let's face it, the KMT would have really liked to gain the presidency, especially because they have more seats in the legislature than the DPP. All right. So the DPP has the presidency for the third term in a row now, and the second highest number of seats in the legislature. And it is impossible to talk about Taiwanese internal politics without contextualizing it with their relationship with China. China would not would prefer to not have a DPP president again. As they have not been shy about saying so either. They, in fact, bombarded Taiwan with all sorts of propaganda saying that a vote for the DPP is essentially a vote for war. Uh, Now, of course, people in Taiwan are quite used to hearing things like this, so they are pretty good about being able to shake things like that off, obviously, because they uh, elected the DPP candidate. With the election of the DPP candidate, right, as we talked about, that's uh, the party China would prefer the least. So Vice President Lai Ching-tai becoming the president-elect. A couple of things happened. On Thursday morning, Taiwan's defense ministry reported the People's Liberation Army, that is the Chinese military, it sent 24 planes and five Navy vessels into Taiwan's air defense identification zone in the previous 24 hours. That was the first incursion of significant size since November. Now, the Global Times, Sam, which you always tell me to read, and I finally did, because the Global Times is the official uh, 
media outlet of the Chinese government. In English. In English, right. Yeah. They say, and I quote, recent nighttime exercises and patrols by the Chinese People's Liberation Army around the island of Taiwan are routine, and they aim to safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity from, and this is quotes, Taiwan independence, secessionists, and external interference forces. Yes, that, in fact, that sort of statement is also routine, right? right? That's the kind of thing that the Global Times frequently says about Taiwan. It is um, at the same time shocking and also illuminating to hear mm -hmm. and to read things like Taiwan independence in quotation marks. It helps you understand the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. Yes, I mean, as you were saying, the Chinese Communist Party on, on the mainland of China would have preferred that the KMT candidate win because the KMT, between them and the DPP, the KMT are much more sort of accommodationist towards the mainland, which is interesting because they are also the party that ruled China for a quarter of a century leading up to the Chinese Revolution in 1949 and then fled to Taiwan uh, as the government in exile under Chiang Kai-shek. So the KMT is Chiang Kai-shek's old party? Oh, yes. Yeah. Copy. He, he ran that party for about half a century, by the way, a about a quarter of a century before the revolution, and then another quarter of a century until his death in 1975 as the governing party of Taiwan. Uh, he was an autocrat in both places, by the way. And so it's there's a little bit of irony that they are now the party that is more accommodating towards communist China. And it's a sort of interesting story to tease out why that is. Because when Chang, again, he'd already been running the KMT for 25 years or thereabouts leading up to the revolution, which he lost after, by the way, a number of other very tumultuous events in Chinese history, which we don't really have time to get into right now. But decamping to Taiwan, he set the KMT up as the governing party, and by the way, the military dictatorship of Taiwan, and insisted, we are still the legitimate government of all of China. It's just that we've endured a temporary setback, but we are now also your government, people of Taiwan. Therefore, we would like you to be the sort of living exemplars of Chinese national unity. Now, John, it, I think we both know very well that in just about any country that has an island territory, people on that island just sort of naturally develop what they with pride see as a distinct cultural identity from mainlanders, whether it's Hawaii or the Channel Islands in the United Kingdom, the Florida Keys. To broaden this out a little bit, for example, there are many people in the British Isles sure. who re react resentfully if you even suggest that they should be considered European, which is right. absurd, right? right? But that is the way many of them think about it. Not all British people think of, think of it that way, but many do. Uh, and so if you're Taiwanese and suddenly... All these people from the mainland come into your country, your island province, that is, at, at that point, with, by the way, 
all the naval and air power of the of the military and say we're your government now it's a military dictatorship so if you don't like that you might want to keep quiet if you already think of yourself as having a distinct island identity if you're at all minded to be sort of in resisting the military dictatorship then the the separate taiwanese cultural identity is just something that you would naturally gravitate to and so that's the way this shook out and so what became to be known as the one china policy actually suited both the taiwanese military dictatorship on the chiang kai-shek and the kmt and the chinese communist party they could both say and in fact did and still do we are the legitimate government of all of china and there is only one china it's just a question of who is the rightful governing party whether it's the communists or the kmt now this was sort of absurd on the part of the kmt and chiang kai-shek in particular but again he'd already served survived many very serious developments in chinese history up to that point on some level we can forgive him for thinking that he could survive this also and perhaps return to the mainland he might have thought that the united states would help him out but i think once the outbreak and end of the korean war had passed just a year later and then for several years thereafter he should have been disabused of that notion because during the korean war as we know communist china fought the united states and, a, and an allied coalition to a standstill on the korean peninsula once that had happened the idea of the kmt returning to the mainland i think should have been off the table but chang never really gave up on it and remained in power until his death in 1975 and one thing we have to explain for maybe folks who aren't as constantly enmeshed in the thinking of 20th century uh, geopolitics is the United States backed Chiang Kai-shek, a military dictator and an autocrat, not because he was a great guy and uh, a paragon of uh, you know human rights, but because he just wasn't Mao. He just wasn't the communist. That's right. And let's face it, Mao was a monster. So, sure. you know, and if you're making that choice, it it's not all that difficult. Now, believe me, Chiang Kai-shek was, you know, no prince among men, right? But uh, he was easily the preferred uh, leader of China for the United States and the Western world writ large. But then another thing also happened, which is that, well, a number of things. But Chiang died in 1975. A year later... Mao Zedong died. Now, in just about any country, whether it's a one-party dictatorship or multi-party democracy, if you have a market economy, the business community generally likes to maintain pretty good relations with whatever party's in power, just because it suits their own interests. But of course, in a one-party dictatorship, that's really a much more important thing to do. You really want to stay in good with the government of a military dictatorship if you're a business leader in that country so the kmt became very much enmeshed with the business community of taiwan now john you're probably too young to remember this but when i was a child i had toys and other sort of low value manufactured pro products many of which said made in japan on them but some of them said made in taiwan i also remember this all right not quite as many but of course, Taiwan is a much smaller country than Japan and therefore has a much smaller 
domestic consumer market that needs to be serviced by its manufacturing base. I don't know, but I would guess that exported manufactured goods might have been a larger portion of the Taiwanese GDP at that point than it was of Japan. Again, I could be wrong about that, but the point is that exporting manufactured goods was very important for Taiwan at that point. Mao Zedong dies, I'm sorry, Chiang Kai-shek dies in 1975. Mao Zedong dies a year later. So Mao Zedong is eventually succeeded by Deng Xiaoping, who in 1978, as we know, launched a sweeping program of economic reforms in communist China, opening it up to foreign investment and leading to the economic miracle we are still witnessing. Yes, which actually might be coming to a close. We can't really tell thus far, right? So there was a new leader in communist China. The KMT was suddenly, basically for the first time in its history, without its single unifying autocratic leader. And they were the party most close. Actually, they were still a military dictatorship, but they were closely allied with the Taiwanese manufacturing business community, who very naturally became some of the first companies to enter the newly opened Chinese economy. They spoke the language. They had they're manu- right there. They they're right there. They have manufacturing know-how with the, which the Chinese are very anxious to learn. This happened very naturally. And this is the story of how the KMT became the accommodationist party with mainland China after beginning their life as their arch enemy. So the fact that the KMT is the preferred party in power now in Taiwan for what used to be called or what is still archaically called Red China would have Chiang Kai-shek spinning in his grave. I think that's probably right. But again, you know, he died in 1975. This was quite some time ago and many I mean, things have happened since then. Sam, but, I do love a deep irony of history. That is a deep irony of history. But still to this day, the DPP, the the Democratic People's Party, is the party of the separate Taiwanese cultural identity. They're still the party who says, you know what? I'm not Chinese. I'm from Taiwan. And by the way, you, Mr. Chang, are not. Uh, And so don't tell me that you're my government. That's still kind of who they are. One other uh, result of this election, tiny. Island nation uh, Nauru in Micronesia, northeast of Australia, flipped their diplomatic allegiance from Taiwan to China. Oh, no. Whatever shall we do? I know. This is actually the 10th diplomatic ally of Taiwan that uh, mainland China, Beijing, has managed to flip since the DPP won the presidency first in 2016. That's correct. And so it's a tiny, tiny little speck of an island. No, no, no. But but this is a trend. 2016 is the last time that the DPP won the oh, presidency. This, this cur- I should say this yeah. current iteration of DPP presidential power. Yes, uh, that's right. Now, that's I'm sure that that Taiwan isn't happy about that, but they're kind of gotten used to it. In the end, sure. the Ty- Taiwan has exactly one important ally, and it's always been the case, and that ally is, of course, the United States. I am fascinated by the Taiwan... China dynamic for a number of reasons. It's such a fascinating mirror to hold up to things that happened pre and post World War II in the 20th century. It's a, a hopefully not vestigial uh, 
part of the United States role as the insurer of global security, right? A lot of people in the United States will ask you, what do we really care about Taiwan being taken over by communist China? Well, and this it, might be a good uh, pivot point to our next topic, right? Yeah. That Taiwan happens to be situated uh, on international shipping lanes, not just from China, but from all of East Asia to the rest of the world. And it is still at this point, the responsibility of the United States to secure sh security in those shipping lanes. And actually, China doesn't seem to really be stepping up to replace the United States in that particular regard. I, I don't see them sending anybody into the Red Sea uh, to try and safeguard their own shipping interests, by the way. Uh, China ships many goods through the Red, Red Sea, or at least has until recently. They don't seem extremely concerned about uh, the interruption of shipping of products from their own companies to very important markets in the West, which I find, well, I was going to say baffling, although it's actually not that baffling. Uh, it's a disquieting. Okay, so that's, let's pivot to the Red Sea, right? Uh, the Houthis have said uh, recently that they do not intend to expand their attacks on shipping in and around the Red Sea beyond their stated aims of blockading Israel uh, and then retaliating uh, against uh, the airstrikes in the United States and the United Kingdom. A spokesperson for the Houthis spoke to Reuters, uh, said the group had no plans to target its longstanding foes in Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates. So they're basically claiming, look, we're standing in solidarity with our Palestinian brethren and uh, anything else is just uh, unintentional collateral damage. But of course, that's not what's happening because another U.S. operated ship came under attack earlier this week. Uh, the Indian Navy had to rescue the crew of the Genco Picardi. This uh, happened in the Gulf of Aden, which is Red Sea adjacent. It's just outside the southern mouth of the Red Sea. The United States has continued to fire missiles to take out uh, Houthi anti-ship missiles. President Biden spoke to the media, spoke to the world earlier this week and said, uh, are these attacks stopping the Houthis? No, but they're going to, or he said, quote, are they going, going to continue? Yes. So he's trying to have this blend of not an all out, uh, to borrow a phrase, bombing back to the Stone Age campaign against the Houthis. But he obviously understands the importance, as we've talked about in previous episodes, that disruption of international shipping in the Red Sea has potentially catastrophic effects on the global economy. Now, Sam, I'm curious why China, with the world's largest navy, maybe doesn't want to involve themselves in the Red Sea. Are they just going to use this navy to harass Taiwanese fishermen? Apparently. it's. I mean, we talk often about China's opportunity to be seen as a global leader in the global South, investment in Africa, on and on and on. They constantly seem to crave this, um, this role or to be viewed as a global leader. Yes, but, but they want to be viewed as a global leader in a different way from the way in which the United States has been viewed as a global leader. Would it no. just be too imperialist in tone for them to bring their Navy and... That could be their rationale, yes. Right. But I'm I think, you know, it might not be the worst idea for them to do so. And to go back to what the Houthis are saying, 
okay, fine. Maybe you don't intend to expand the targeting of whichever ships you're going after. But do they understand that just the attacks that they've made so far have caused shipping through that channel to decline by 90%? So it doesn't matter whether you're targeting this or that nationality of ship. The fact is you're making things worse for everybody. And I mean everybody. You've raised the cost of shipping worldwide. Again, we can look at the Drury indexes, right? This is They're still going up this week from where they were last week, which was up from where they were the week before and on and on and on. So we, we shouldn't care whether you're targeting this or that ship. You're actually damaging everybody's economy in the world with the possible exception of South Africa. So, Sam, I have a question for you that I was thinking about this morning. The United States and its allies right now are engaged in what we can call a a muted or limited or targeted response against the Houthis, right? Why is the United States reluctant to make an example out of the Houthis? I think that's an excellent question. Because, because you see the upside, right? If you unleash a disproportionate muscle-flexing display of the unbelievably lethal power of the United States military against the Houthis, pretty much everybody's going to quietly or loudly, depending on their position, say thank you, United States and your allies. And you will also have a very public display of disincentivization for those who would oppose the United States and its allies. It might be important for people like the Chinese Communist Party or Vladimir Putin to see something like that. I think it goes back to wanting to maintain some semblance of influence with the global South. Okay, I, so, I, right. So you don't want to be seen just indiscriminately indiscriminately, um, and kind of for public relations purposes, bombing the hell out of a bunch of uh, brown people. So yeah, right. suddenly you're Israel and Yemen is right. Gaza. Right. Uh, and innocent people of Yemen who have nothing to do with this actually are paying the price. In fact, the State Department made a point of mentioning this week that the United States is still the top provider of humanitarian aid to Yemen and has been for quite some time. Uh, but you're right. They seem to be wanting to do this quietly. There was a story that developed of starting last weekend that I found very interesting, which was that on Saturday, it emerged that two Navy SEALs had fallen into the water in the Gulf of Aden yes. and were missing, and they were and the Navy was looking for them. I don't think they've been found, by the way. Uh, over the course of the next few days, it emerged, finally on Tuesday, that the operation in which those SEALs were engaged at the time was interdiction of weapons shipments from Iran into Yemen. And so perhaps the Houthis might want to understand that they also depend on maritime trade. Now, the boats that bring them their weapons from Iran, they're not enormous container ships. They're actually very small fishing vessel vessels. And I, I would imagine that they're not disguised as fishing vessels, as uh, some commentators say. They actually are just fishermen who get paid off. They smuggle stuff. Right just like they've been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years along the south coast of 
the Arabian Peninsula. I don't think that they're getting their arms over land through Oman, uh, just because Oman, to their credit, is distinctive among Arab nations of never being on the news. Uh, because they just don't want to be involved in any of the trouble that seems to always be happening. And, and by the way, the Houthis do not control the area of Yemen that is along the border with Oman. So it would be difficult for them to get their weapons that way. And so I sort of along the lines of what you were just saying, I would have thought that the United States would want to make a big show right. intercepting weapon shipments from Iran, but they did not seem to want to do that. And by the way, this is not the first time they've done this. It's just the first time that we've heard about it since the Hamas attacks of October 7th. This is something that the, the Navy routinely does. But of course, the only permanent military base that the United States has on the African continent is in the very small East African nation of Djibouti which is right on the Gulf of Aden, just outside the southern end of the Red Sea. Now, one of the reasons that base is there is just to sort of be the traffic cop of shipping through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, you know, make sure there's no trouble. Well, guess what? There's a lot, there's a lot less shipping to keep an eye on through that channel right now. So you know what? Those sailors in Djibouti, they don't have as many things to do anymore. Maybe they could spend a little more time trying to intercept small fishing boats bringing weapons to Yemen. Uh, I expect they're going to be doing this, but again, they don't seem to want to talk about it very loudly. So it is interesting the United States, and in particular maybe the Biden administration, is reluctant to be seen bombing the hell out of uh Yemen because non-combatants would be killed, right? There's also a political calculation here. Part of Biden's coalition is appalled at his support of Israel, as muted as it has become, right? And well, so, not just that, but many people in on in the Republican Party have taken a very isolationist turn. Right, uh, they don't want to be involved in anybody's war. Uh, far from our shores. This is something that's developed since the presidency of Donald Trump, and I think we'll continue to do so at whatever pace. I can't really gauge that. I mean, that's an astounding evolution in the Republican Party. Uh, yeah. That's that's for another podcast. Certainly. So Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, rejected earlier this week calls from the United States to scale back Israel's military offensive in Gaza. And he also rejected the call to take steps towards the establishment of a Palestinian state after the war. Uh, the Biden administration disagreed after those comments. Uh, John Kirby, White House national security spokesman, quote, we obviously see it differently. The New York Times has an article today that you may have not seen yet, Sam, published by one of our favorite authors, Thomas Friedman about how opinion <clears throat> is turning against Netanyahu. I like Friedman more than Sam does. That's the that's the spoiler alert. Um, Netanyahu, Sam, I think we've talked about this, is clearly signaling to his hard right coalition, stick with me and you won't have to deal with any Palestinian state in a post-war scenario, which is kind of a desperate attempt to hang on to power 
like Netanyahu's going to lose an election after this war is the prevailing conventional if, wisdom. And this is him so. trying to prevent that, right? If you say so. I mean, well, that's I, the conventional wisdom. I, it I is the perceived. conventional wisdom, which is very often wrong, as we know. I mean, Netanyahu is the great survivor of Israeli politics. That's a great point. He's come back from the dead over and over and over again. Uh, at, at a certain point, one might think if the your allied government says that their policy goals are diametrically opposed to yours why do you keep supporting them right I, it's after a while it's not very tenable uh, or it doesn't appear that way uh, and anybody could be forgiven for making that calculation i'm not quite certain i agree with it but it's not remotely unreasonable uh and so we'll have to see how this plays out. Wait, but so just to be clear, you're saying given that the United States right now, and in particular the Biden administration, is saying we see this differently than how you, Israel, are prosecuting the war, you're saying it would not be unreasonable for the United States to uh, end its support for Israel? No, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm okay. saying is it wouldn't be unreasonable for somebody to question why that support should continue at its same level. Certainly that questioning is happening within Biden's political coalition domestically. As, exactly. As we that's speak. the only point I'm making. No, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, it's not really news that Netanyahu doesn't want a second state. He's just saying it out loud. Yes, but I mean, Netanyahu has repeatedly thumbed his nose at the United States, without which... Israel would have been lost a long time ago. Uh, at some point, how can you allow someone to continue to do this? Right. Voting Israelis understand that. I would hope, but again, they've elected Netanyahu over and over again. Perhaps they understand it in a way that you and I might not, John. Speaking of destabilization in greater Asia, Iran v. Pakistan. So Pakistan carried out strikes inside Iran that, according to Pakistan's foreign affairs ministry, said targeted terrorists. That took place Thursday, yesterday. This comes after Iran launched missiles that struck Pakistan earlier in the week. This is all linked to the January 3rd explosion that killed about 90 people. Tangentially, yes. Mainly, this is just an overreaction by both sides. Uh, now, we tend to think of Iran uh, as the world's great sponsor of terrorism, which they are. Uh, but we forget that, like every other country in their region, they have internal separatist terrorist groups that menace them from the inside. Uh, and one of those groups is in the eastern province of Iran, which is called Sistan and Baluchistan. And it's just across the border from the Pakistani province in western Pakistan of Baluchistan, which, as you might guess, these are both populated by people of the Baluch ethnic group, who are ethnically distinct from both the overwhelmingly Persian Iranians and the predominantly Punjabi Pakistanis. And Iran says that Pakistan allows, or at least can't control, Iranian separatist Baluchis who take shelter in Pakistan. Pakistan says that Iran cannot control 
Pakistani separatist Baluchis who take shelter in Iran. This is absurd. These things can't be true. All right. Sure. If neither of these countries can control the Baluchis inside their own country that are apparently from the other country, then what's the point of them crossing the border to take shelter in the other country? Right. Could it be that the cause of Baluchi independence is actually much further advanced than we thought it was? Probably not. It's just that the remit of the state in both these countries is not strong enough to control their own territory, and they're taking it out on each other. But in addition, not just Baluchi separatists, but Islamic State, as in January 3rd, and other separatist groups inside Iran have been conducting a number of terrorist attacks in recent weeks. So Iran had to be seen to right. strike at somebody. It was just foolish of them to make that inside of Pakistan, because they generally enjoy very good relations with Pakistan. They just conducted joint naval operations in the Arabian Sea about a month ago. Uh, and they apparently didn't give Pakistan any notice. And so Pakistan felt that they had no choice but to re retaliate. I think that they probably shouldn't have, but I can understand why they did. And of course, both of these nations enjoy very good relations with China. And to their credit, the Chinese foreign ministry had a televised statement yesterday saying, we urge both Iran and Pakistan to cease all hostilities and find a diplomatic solution to whatever problems they're having. As it happens, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is right now on tour in South America, uh, and where it's summertime, by the way. Uh, and this follows immediately upon his tour of Africa at the beginning of the year. I'm hoping that he might have taken time away from sipping tropical fruit-flavored cocktails by the pool in Sao Paulo to line up a three-way conference call with his Iranian and Pakistani counterparts and saying, you guys cut it out. When I get home, we're going to have a thing. Uh, but just cut it out right now because this is ridiculous. I sh we share a border with Pakistan. We will not have this. Man, war fever. Don't yeah, catch it's crazy. it. It's crazy. All right. Questions, comments, suggestions, Media at gmail.com. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. We will be back next Friday with another edition of Working for Crusoe. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody.